the day of reckoning has arrived. On one side, the enemies of the Jews are readying to eradicate them. However, on the other side, the Jews are banding together in order to fight for their lives. Two groups of people poised for war with the sole focus to kill or be killed. Throughout the land, battles raged as the Jews and their enemies clashed. As the sun was setting across the kingdom, it was clear that they were no match for God's chosen people. The Jews struck down all who opposed them. In the citadel of Susa alone, 500 men were killed, including the 10 sons of Haman. When the battle report was presented to the king, he was surprised. If that many were killed in the capital alone, how many were killed throughout the kingdom? He asked Esther if there was anything else that she wanted. Her wish was his command. Esther asked the king to extend his blessing to allow the Jews to have an additional day to continue fighting against their enemies. She also asked that Haman's sons be displayed on public gallows for everyone to see. The next day, the Jews killed another 300 men in the capital. In all, 75,000 of their enemies were wiped out. So this is definitely one of the more intense chapters in all of the Bible. It's one of those war chapters that we all hear about from the Old Testament that even critics take pot shots at. And yet, uh, we're going to make sense of this chapter here today. So as our chapel and venue and Northridge and Cactus Campus joins us right now, uh, we're going to bow and pray. And if you're brand new and you're completely lost, we're going to get you caught up in about five minutes. So don't fret and uh, let's bow and pray. God, thank you for our time of worship uh, in which we've been able to focus our minds and hopefully soften our hearts before you. Uh, Lord, we believe here at Scottsdale Bible as your people that you speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit through your word. And so we pray that as we dive into Esther chapter 9, uh, which, Lord, is a, a rather difficult chapter in some ways, we pray that we'd be faithful to what you have recorded and revealed, and that, Lord, you would also reveal to us uh, what you have for us in this chapter. Uh, we come here expectantly, God. We come here because uh, in many, many ways in our 21st century culture, we realize we need you, that we want you, and that uh, we desire you. So meet us in your word now, we pray in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen. So let's start really easy today. Uh, you look like an intelligent people, so I want you to finish these phrases for me. You ready? No pain, no you guys are good. When the going gets tough, the tough get? Good. It's a dog-eat-dog. Dog. Yeah. Uh, to the victor go the? Yeah, you guys are old. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And, uh, and last night they didn't get this one, but I believe in you guys. Money, sex, and power. Yeah, many of you got it. Last night they all yelled out rock and roll. You guys are losers. <laughs> You see, these are our phrases that our world uses quite often. That's why many of us know them. And, and, and what do they all have in common? They all have 
power in common, no pain, no gain. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. It's a dog-eat-dog world. To the victor goes the spoils. And they all have to do with power, something that our world and especially our 21st century American culture is completely enamored with, obsessed with, really. Our phrases give us away. We're all taught from the time that we were little guys or gals to be power-hungry people if we're going to get anywhere in this world around us. So think about it, whether it's a job with more authority or a house with bigger rooms and more land or a car that goes faster or a 401k with bigger returns or a kid who gets better grades or a computer with a bigger hard drive. I mean, we live in a world and a culture that is all about power, power in the form of possessions, power in the form of advancement, power in the form of acquisition, power in the form of position, power in the form of prestige, you name it. And as good Americans, we want it and we want more of it. It's power. And it goes all the way back to the founding of our country. You guys remember the history books? The Revolutionary War. It was a move of power against Britain to found our country. We're known by the rest of the world today as what? A superpower. It's the fuel that big businesses run on. Their entire courses taught on it at the universities. And when you think about it, there's hardly an area of our lives that is not touched by this concept or reality of power. And just so we don't think too negatively about power, what we need to realize is that the Bible as well talks a lot about power, and watch this, it talks about it very positively. It really does. Way back in the book of Genesis, it tells us that this world was created with and in power. And then over and over again in the Old Testament, it reveals to us that God is a God of power. And then you flip the page to the New Testament and it tells us there's this Holy Spirit who inhabits those who believe and the Holy Spirit gives us, say the word with me, power. In fact, that word power in the New Testament appears 123 times, that's a lot. It's the Greek word dunamis where we get our English word dynamite from. We've been so enamored with this idea of power for thousands of years. And truly, folks, it's something that though God originally invented and invented it good, our fallen world has made a mess of it as well. So the questions that I want us to wrestle with as we dive into chapter 9 of Esther here today is how do we make sense of power? And more importantly, as followers of God and Jesus, how do we handle the power that we have been given? What is the Christian take and response to power and how we should use it? Because as I mentioned earlier, this chapter that we told you about in verbal form earlier, chapter 9 of Esther, is all about power. It's a power encounter in this chapter here. And as we look close at it right now, it's going to show us some key things about how you and I should respond to power in our own lives today. So let me show you what I mean. You might remember what the story of Esther is all about. If you're brand new, I'm gonna take two minutes to catch you up. It's 480 BC. 
And the Jews, who are the main people of the Old Testament, have been exiled from their homeland, Israel, by the Persians to faraway places in Persia to the north and east. The king, who is secular, is a power-hungry man, and yet he falls in love with this humble Jewish woman by the name of Esther. But he doesn't know that she's Jewish, but he loves her and he makes her queen. But then trouble begins when the king's second-in-command, a guy by the name of Haman, gets offended by Esther's cousin, a guy by the name of Mordecai, and instead of sort of just letting it roll off his back, he decides to get back at the entire Jewish race, and as the second-in-command of Persia, he decides to annihilate or exterminate all the Jews living in Persia at that time, over a million of them. And yet Esther saves the day. Through a wise God-led plan, Esther gets the king to not only issue a competing edict, allowing the Jews to defend themselves against this onslaught by the Persians, but he promotes Mordecai after hanging Haman when Esther reveals this plan. And now Mordecai is the new second-in-command, he's a Jew, and he has the complete Persian army to help defend themselves with. And yet it's not over yet because a battle still needs to be fought because that first edict is still in place. Goofy culture, but not even the king in that Persian culture could overrule his own edict. So the first one's still in place to annihilate all the Jews, but a new one is now there in which the Jews can defend themselves even with the king's help. And so this is what the first half of chapter nine is about, a battle is now going to take place, a battle that promises to vindicate Esther, Mordecai, and the Jews in Persia. And so with this understanding, I want you to look at verse one of chapter nine, because it's so revealing to you and me when it comes to understanding what power is. It's a great starting place in our discussion of power. Look at what it says in Esther chapter nine, verse one. Now in the 12th month, that is the month Adar, on the 13th day when the king's command and edict were about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. So I made it really easy for you guys here today. I put it in bold yellow, what we need to focus on for our understanding of power. And it's that twice repeated phrase, gain mastery over. Gain mastery over. It's fascinating. That phrase, twice repeated here, is actually one word in the original Hebrew that the Old Testament was written in. It's the Hebrew word shalat. And it's a fascinating word. It literally means to rule, to have dominion, to have power. Don't miss this. It's a word of control. It simply pictures someone having enough resources behind him or her, whether they be physical resources like an army or even personal resources like emotions and thoughts, enough resources to get the upper hand and have enough influence and control to win the day. It's fascinating. This is the same word that's used by the writer of Ecclesiastes when he is bemoaning the fact that he has to work all of his life and then pass his wealth down to someone else. 
And this is a great passage for people living in Scottsdale. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter two, verses 18 and 19. He says, thus I hated all the fruit of my labor which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control, shalat, over all the fruit of my labor, which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Think about it, folks. Inheritance is a form of power. That's what it's saying here. It's a form of control. It's passing on the resources that you have worked for now to someone else who's gonna have that kind of power financially in their lives. And though it wasn't an inheritance, this is exactly what's happening in Esther chapter nine. You see, back in chapter three of Esther, Haman had the power, right? Haman had gained the mastery over the Jews. But now the tables are turned and the Jews have the power here. They have gained the mastery over their enemies. So simply see, this entire book, and especially chapter nine, is all about power, the control over people and or things. And the reality is, that though some of us have never defined or view power this way as a form of control, it really is what it is. And when you think about it, we're all familiar with it and experience it in both good ways and bad ways just about every day of our lives. When you define power as simply having control or influence over those and others and things around you, you realize, man, it's all around me and I experience it all the time. And this will be a great illustration for you because uh, I know the answer to the question I'm about to ask. How many of you like animals? Raise your hand if you like animals. Just about everybody's raising your hand. Uh, let me get a little bit more specific. How many of you are dog people? Raise your hand. I'm not even gonna ask about cat people. So uh, I'm glad that a lot of you are dog people here today. Those of you not smiling are cat people. I love you still. And Kim and I are dog people. We have owned uh, quite a few dogs over the years. We've never in our marriage uh, had a house that didn't have a dog in it. Right now we have two dogs. And, and about 15 years ago when I was living in Cleveland, Ohio, pastoring my home church there, uh, we had a dog that was one of my wife's all-time favorite dogs. His name was Chester. Chester was just a wonderful little dog. And one day I decided to take some pictures of Chester for a sermon that I was doing. And there's two things you need to know about, about Chester. First is that he was a small, high-strung Jack Russell Terrier, if you know the breed. I mean, just all spit and wind. And he was eight years old with lots of personality. And, and the second thing you need to know is that my wife just loved Chester. I mean, this was her dog, and, and she just, one of her favorite dogs we ever had. And, and, and I've always been the alpha male. I know that's hard to picture, but I've always been the alpha male with our dogs. They, they love Kim, but they respect me. That's kind of how things have worked. And, uh, and, and so this day, I was uh, taking some pictures of Chester, and so I took him outside, and the uh, very first thing I did is I said, hey, Chester, look over here. And, and this is the picture I took of him. 
And, and so he, he looked up to me very inquisitively and I, I, I snapped the camera. And, and at that point, he just went nuts. Did I mention he was a Jack Russell? So he started jumping up and down, trying to get the camera, you know, and he's, he's running all around. And, and I'm like, oh, I don't have time for this. So I, I looked at him and I said, Chester, I said, you just sit down and I need you to stop because I got to get a picture. And I kid you not, this is the next picture I took. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so seeing that I got the picture I wanted, I, I, I was so proud of myself. I, I showed it to Kim when she got home and she said, you are a sick, sick man. She said, if that dog could talk, he's saying, I hate you. When does mom come home? That, that was my life with Chester, a high-strung dog, but I was able to exert the influence and, and have some control over him. Now, just so you think I'm, I'm not totally mean, uh, the tables currently have completely turned on me because I showed you this before, but a couple of years ago, my daughter Abby, who moved to Texas, couldn't keep her dog, so she handed off this dog to us, all right? And so this is our current dog, one of them. Uh, she's a, a 10-pound Shih Tzu Poodle mix. Her name is Maylee. And she, Kim would tell you, has me wrapped around her little finger. Uh, she sleeps on our bed, first dog in 31 years that have ever slept on our bed. She can't jump up onto our bed or jump down because she's too small. Uh, we have to protect her at every, around every corner. We can't let her outside alone because we live next to a wash near the Indian reservation and we have coyotes and bobcats and owls and she's great owl bait. So we just pamper this little dog. And, and true to form, uh, at, at 12.18 this morning, 12.18, uh, she was on her bed and she went to her usual spot, which is the southwest corner of our bed, and she started to cry at 12.18, and I got out of bed, I picked her up, I walked her downstairs, and she didn't want to go outside, she wanted a drink of water, so I gave her a drink of water, <laughs> and then I, I picked her back up, and I walked her upstairs, and, and Kim just shakes her head and says, this dog completely what? Controls you. If you can grab onto that, and every one of you can, you can understand what power is. Listen to me. It's any time and anywhere that we use our resources, whether they are tangible ones like money and position, as well as intangible ones like thoughts and emotions to exert influence, good or bad, on the people and things around us. That's what power is. And what we see in this chapter here, and this is really important, we're going to pause on this for just a second before we move on. What we see in this chapter here is that Mordecai obviously now has some power. Esther has some power. The Jews have some power. But the Persians also have some power. In other words, every player in the book of Esther even at every point in Esther's story, has some power, right? They have some influence. They have some control. In other words, whether the chips were down for the Israelites or up, whether the chips are down for the Persians or up, it really doesn't matter. By God's definition of power, they all have power at each point in this story. Some more than others, but they all have power. And why is that important? 
Because I think that prevents many of us today, now listen closely, gang, from becoming victims in our lives. And no matter what our lot in life, whether things are down right now or whether things are up, whether things are good or bad, it prevents you and I from saying, I have no power, I'm powerless. Because you are not. Listen to me, you are made in the image of Almighty God. He made you, he loves you, he has given you breath, he has given you energy, he has given you will, he has given you the ability to make something of your life and in that is what theologians call creation power that is coursing through your veins. And then if you're a believer, it gets only better. Because now you have what? The Holy Spirit living inside of you. So you have resurrection power inside of you, even when things are difficult. And I'm not suggesting that there aren't victims today. There are. People get victimized and hurt deeply. But even when you have been victimized, you're not a pure victim. You're not powerless. God is always with you as he's been with the Jews throughout this whole story. And power is still with you, both creation-wise and redemption-wise. We all have some. And if you're sitting here today, wallowing in self-pity, saying, I have no power over my circumstances, you need to label that a lie and start to see it for what it is. That especially with God on your side, you have power. And what we need to dial into once we understand that in our discussion here of of Esther chapter 9, now watch this, is that God's chief concern is actually not whether you have power or not. Because you do. He's already cemented that one. Everybody in this story has power, so do you. No, his chief concern is what you do with the power that you have. What his chief concern is, is how we handle whatever level of power or influence you happen to have in your life right now. And watch this, the more power you have, the greater concern God has that you handle it rightly. Because the more power you have, the harder it is to handle it. Our story before us shows us this as the uh, story heats up with Esther and Mordecai and the Jews now having a tremendous amount of power in this chapter here. I want you to go on to look at what it says in verses five and six. These are some of the harsher verses in this chapter, I warn you. These are the verses that many critics of the Bible and skeptics take pot shots at, but we're gonna blow that one out of the water right now. Look at what it says in verses five and six. It says, thus the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying. And they did what they pleased to those who hated them. And in Susa, the capital, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. This is pretty harsh, but I warn you, it only gets worse. It says in verses seven through 10, that they killed Haman's 10 sons. And then it says in verses 12 and 16 that they killed more men, like thousands more. And though we're going to focus more on this in a minute, to be fair to the Jews here, what we need to remember is that the Persians were bent on attacking them. 
They were bent on annihilating them from the face of the earth. And when we look closely, and we're going to do this in a minute, at this chapter, every one of the moves of the Jews were defensive in nature. As verse 16 will sum up, they assembled to defend their very lives. And so what most Bible experts point out is that they were fighting for their lives. And so even when they struck first, like they do in verses 5 and 6 here, they were striking people who they had full knowledge were going to come at them and kill them, like, real soon. So it's a defensive thing going on here. But this aside, and we'll get back to that more in a minute, there is no mistaking here that Mordecai and the Jews had an incredible amount of power. They had the king's new edict. They had the provincial leaders and the armies behind them. They even had the king's permission, which is where they get this in verse five. The king is the one who said, do what you please to those who hate you. The king told them to do that, which is ironically exactly what Haman said he was gonna do in Esther three, verse 11. When the king said to Haman, do what you want with the Jews. It's just that now, as we've seen, it's on the other foot. It's a reversal of power that the Jews have been given. Some of you have experienced that in your life. And now all of a sudden, you have the upper hand. And there's a massive amount of power on your side. And though we're going to see more specifically what the Jews did with this power in just a minute... The point that we need to emphasize right now is that the more power you have, the harder it is to handle. It's just a truism about power. Jesus says, to him who isn't given much, much will be expected. And when you and I tend to have a lot of power in our lives, which many Americans and many people in Scottsdale do have, all of heaven is watching. God is watching how you handle it, and how responsibly you handle it. And I know how some of you think. You're thinking right now, well, Jamie, I'm just a normal Joe or a normal Mary. I don't have all that much power. You have a lot more than you think. I want you to think about the power that you have in your life right now. I want you to think about your kids. Parents have more power in their children's lives than they could ever imagine And you say, yeah, but they don't listen to me. That's because there's a power struggle going on, amen? In other words, they wouldn't be fighting you if you didn't have some power. And so the reality is, is that we have more influence because we're mom and dad over our children than we would ever realize. You have more influence on your job, whether you have people over you or under you, than you might realize. You have more influence on your spouse to either make his or her day or to break his or her day. You have influence in your community where you coach and serve, in your church, with your friends, even in how you seek and follow God. Simply notice, because we're going to accelerate in about two minutes, simply realize what a profound sense of responsibility you have with the power that you have been given. Like Mordecai and Esther, who were told they could do whatever they please with those around them, many, if not most of us, have loads of freedom and choices and how we can respond with the power we have in the lives of those around us. We do. Think about it this way, gang. We have the power to love or hate, to hurt or to heal, to protect or to cause pain, to destroy 
or to rekindle, uh, to push people away or to breed reconciliation. We have lots of power at our disposal in the most important areas of our lives, relationally and spiritually. And the more power given to us, the greater responsibility we have. And so once we understand that, I'm not trying to scare you, this is just real stuff. Once we understand that, the only question we have to wrestle with, and it's the $10 question today, is how do we then handle it rightly? How do we wield the sword of power that God has given to each of us in different measure, but to each of us in our lives? And the answer finally leads us to our main point of Esther 9 this morning. And it's a good main point, and it's this. And that is that we need to realize that God wants our power to be tempered by his grace and truth. If you ever wondered what God's will for you is in your life right now, man, I'm gonna help you get nudged up against it right now. He wants your power to be tempered by his grace and truth. I want you to look one last time with me at Esther chapter nine, and I wanna show you how this works. And I want you to notice with me, this is really amazing, three distinct ways that the Jews handled this almost unbridled power that was given to them, this do with what you please power given to them by the king. First, notice, and we mentioned this earlier, but let's see it in black and white right now. Notice that the Jews assumed only a defensive posture. It says in verse 16 of our chapter that the Jews assembled to defend their lives, to defend their lives. So instead of attacking haphazardly or whimsically, they only attacked those who were bent on destroying them. That's important to note. It was defensive. But then interesting notice that they only attack men. It says three times over in verses 6, 14, and 15, it says, and in Susa, the capital, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And then in verse 14, Haman's 10 sons were hanged. And then in verse 15, the Jews killed 300 men. And we know that it's men and that this isn't a mistranslation because it's the Hebrew word ish, which means men. And so let that sink in. They didn't attack women and children. They attacked battle-hardened, bent on killing them, men. And then, most interesting and fascinating, notice thirdly, that they didn't take any material possessions or even land from those that they attacked and killed. Even though Haman's plan was to plunder them, it says this in chapter three, verse 13, and even though the king told them to take whatever plunder they could. It says this in chapter eight, verse 11, the Jews chose not to reap any material gain from their victory. And it makes it really clear because thrice over in this chapter, in verses 10, 15, and 16, it says like a scratch CD repeating itself over and over again, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. So add it all up, gang. You got a defensive posture only, no women and children hurt, and no material gain. See, this is your answer when people say that there's a bunch of bloodthirsty battles in the Old Testament in which God's people just killed everybody around them. Guess what? There are those things, but when you look closely, there's reasons why. And more importantly, what you need to see is that there are significant restraints on this blank check of power given to the Jews. 
And we have to ask ourselves the question at this point, why? Why would the Jews act with such self-control and moderation? And what just about every Bible expert posits is this. And that is that it was due to their obedience to and love for the God who was behind the scenes. That even though they're at a low point, even though God feels far away, even though he's not even mentioned in this book, behind the scenes, they are still obeying him and following him in his commandments and in his love for them. And that's why they did what they did here. You see, murdering innocent people is wrong. It's the sixth commandment of God's top 10. So killing those who are not a part of Haman's plot, who are not coming against them, would have broken one of the commandments. And the Jews did not do this. And as far as the plunder thing goes, some Bible experts point out that 1 Samuel 15 was probably in play. You guys remember that story where Saul was told by Samuel, by God through Samuel, not to take any of the plunder, and yet Saul does, and God is very angry with him. So they posit here that the Jews probably remembered that story and said, we don't want to displease God, so we're not touching the plunder. In other words, don't miss this. It was God's truth and grace that bridled, that tempered the unbridled power that the Jews have here. It was his grace and truth that gave them wisdom and caused them to handle power rightly in such a way that provided protection but didn't needlessly harm others. Thomas Jefferson, our third president and one of the founders of this powerful country of ours once said this so wisely. He once said, I hope our wisdom will grow with our power and teach us that the less we use our power, the greater it will be. That's exactly what Esther 9 is revealing to us as well. And so as we wrap up today, you had to see this question coming. Let me simply ask you, how are you using the power that's been given to you? Man, if you don't hear anything else today, I I, I beat it into you earlier. (laughs) You have power. (laughs) Don't walk out of here a victim. I don't care how difficult your circumstances are, how, how difficult your marriage might be, or how rebellious your kids might be, or how out of whack your emotions might be. I mean, we, we, we've all, yeah, I get that, I get it. But that doesn't mean you're powerless. You have power from creation, and as you embrace Jesus, from redemption. So, so as you go home to your troubled marriage, as you interface with your rebellious kids, as you deal with your depression tonight, as you go to the job that kind of stinks or the retirement that isn't what you thought it was, how are you using the power given to you by Almighty God? Are you forcefully and thoughtlessly foisting it upon those around you, creating a wave of hurt people in your wake with your anger and bitterness? Or are you seeking God's truth and grace on a regular basis and with the power he gives you guided by love exercising it wisely and rightly. And and as I've said before, and and some of you aren't gonna like this, but man, I'm telling you this works. If you really wanna know the answer to that question, ask your wife, ask your husband, ask your good friend, dare you even ask your children. My dear wife is here in this service right now, been married 31 years, And she has more permission to speak truth to me than anybody else. And believe me, she does. On a regular basis. 
Kim has confronted me on the strength or use of the power in my life, whether it be with a little Jack Russell Terrier or whether it be with my children or with my church, she will regularly call me on it and say, are you handling it rightly? We all need mirrors like that in our lives. And so if you at all wonder about your life, use one of the mirrors around you. Because here's what's at stake. This is our last verse. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 says this. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Man, I love that. And here's my challenge to you. I long for the day when Christians will have all three of those in commensurate form in their souls. Amen. I know Christians that are power people. I know Christians that are love people. <laughs> I know a lot of Christians that are disciplined people. But I know very few that marry all three of those. And that will be described as somebody who has a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Imagine the sweet aroma we would be to those around us if those three ruled our souls. They can. Esther shows us how. And so does God's spirit. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father, as we go to the communion table now here and at our other campuses and venues, it's a good time for us to reflect not only on the word of God, but on how it matches up against our lives. And Father, I pray that as each of us gives some thought as we head into this table about our own power, as we receive these elements that are all about the power of Jesus and his redemption in our lives, I pray, God, that you would speak to us by your spirit, and that, God, each of us would, would, would own and, and be honest about how we're handling power in our lives. We know we've been given some, maybe not as much as we want, but we got some. And, Lord, your greatest concern is how we handle it. So may we handle it rightly, power, love, and self-discipline. And I pray this in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen.